Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the First World War and have over 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 5th of November 2018 and this is episode 88. On today's programme, I talk to historian Dr Stephen Sanford about his book, Neither Unionist Nor Nationalist, about the 10th Irish Division during the Great War. Stephen, welcome to, to the Dispatches podcast. Could you start by introducing yourself and telling us how you became interested in the Great War? My name is Stephen Sanford. I'm a former accountant and civil servant. Uh, I have a PhD in modern history from uh, Queen's University Belfast. I think my interest in the Great War stemmed from a secondary school teacher I had who had a real enthusiasm for it and rather mischievously us, us boys once we got onto subjects like the penal code and the corn laws and all this lot always knew how to get them off the subject onto something more interesting and I think that's how I really got interested. Of course having six members of the family who served during the First World War also helped my interest although only one was alive when, uh, when I really got interested in the subject. Can you tell us about the origins and formations of the unit? Uh, to begin with, of course, it was one of uh, Kitchener's first 100,000 volunteers, K1 Division. Uh, it got the Irish um, name or subtitle, uh, not from the fact that it, of any political reason, but from the fact that it was raised in the Irish command. Originally, uh, the first 12 infantry divisions were raised from the 8th Irish Line Battalions, uh, so that every one of them was represented. Now, of those, five of them came from uh, what is uh, now Ulster, or from the Ulster province and now Northern Ireland. The other uh, battalions were all from the south. But even at the very beginning, what we get is uh, a population of, of 36% male population in the, the nine northern counties, having to provide something like 45% of the actual battalions. So later to that was added the 10th Hampshire Regiment, which originally came in for training purposes, but ended up being part of the 29th Brigade when the uh, 5th Royal Irish became their Pioneer Battalion. So what units actually made up the uh, division on its creation in 1914? Well, the division was made up of Royal Irish Fusiliers, Royal Irish Rifles, Royal Monster Fusiliers, Leinsters, uh, Royal Dublin Fusiliers, Royal Enniskillen Fusiliers. Could you tell me about the structure of the division? <clears throat> the structure of the division basically was... Uh, the 29th, 30th and 31st Brigades. The 29th was made up of uh, one English battalion and three Irish battalions. Uh, the, 30, the 30th Brigade was made up of um, the Fusilier battalions from the south of Ireland, as i.e. the Munsters and the Dublin Fusiliers. And the 31st uh, Brigade was made up of the Northern Fusilier battalions, i.e. the Irish Fusiliers and the Royal and Skillen Fusiliers. And as it was obviously a new army battalion recruiting men um, as volunteers, what was the social and economic background of the men and the officer class? The social background of the uh, the men was largely the same as what it would have been pre, uh, pre-war. Uh, the majority, about 60%, would have been drawn from the unskilled labouring classes. Uh, the background of the officer class, it would have been much more dependent on business professions than it would have been beforehand. Before the war, the Irish regiments depended for about 
bit over half of their officers from military families, followed by clergy, uh, solicitors and uh, medicine, which are known as senior professions. During the, this period, less than a quarter of the men were then found to be from a military background. The other ones fell off slightly as well. But having said that, other business professions you know, sort of took up the, the slack, uh, the likes of accountancy. But then we have, a lot of, we have a lot of students coming in as well from the OTCs. The unit also in, included the 7th Battalion Royal Dublin Fusiliers and, and particularly D Company. Tell me about that. D Company were known as the Toffs in the Toffs. Um, basically, they were men drawn from, largely from professional and sporting backgrounds. Uh, they made up a complete company. But that, and over the years, you know, it's the, uh, the 7th Battalion tried uh, as being claimed to be a PALS battalion. But in reality, it wasn't that much of a PALS battalion because we have evidence that they drew men from the, the docks areas of Dublin, you know, men from even from uh, Welsh miners and the like. And so um, it, it really was the men of D Company who were the toffs. You know, the rest of the company had a much more uh, normal background that would have fitted perhaps in with the normal type of recruitment. Um, just to have a, a quick look at it, they actually had a number of men in from the Wiltshire Regiment, for instance, uh, at that stage. The Wiltshire Regiment uh, had something in the region of uh, 120 men, I think, in, in just that battalion. So you've got the units formed in 1914. Tell me about the op its operational history and what it got up to. Its first appearance in action was at Gallipoli. Uh, I suppose on the first regiments that went into action were the men of the uh, of 29th Brigade, who were uh, the Leinster Regiment, the Hampshires, uh, the Royal Irish Rifles, and also the, the 5th Connaught Rangers. They went into action on the, on the 6th, 7th of uh, August 1915. They landed at Anzac Cove and for the rest of the, uh, the Gallipoli campaign while the division was there they never rejoined the rest of the, the division. They took part in the uh, attack on Sari Bear. Uh, there's some evidence that they almost reached the top of it because um, remains and buttons and the like of uh, Royal Irish Rifles uh, men have been found near the top. And that was on during the period of the 10th, or the 6th to the 10th of August. Um, after that, they took part in the, the later battle of on Hill 60, uh, where one VC was won by an Australian um, officer. The other uh, two brigades, the 30th and the 31st, they landed uh, incompletely uh, at Suvla. Some on the northern shore and some on the southern shore. The, uh, the, the brigades were actually very mixed up. Uh, they arrived without any um, maps um, and actually hadn't even been told what they were supposed to be doing when they arrived. They, um, they were put under the command of the 11th Division, which was to have cleared the, the bay, the, the bay area before the arrival of the 10th, but had actually not actually moved off the beaches. Uh, the, uh, the division then uh, cut across the cut and, and round the back of uh, the Salt Lake and cleared uh, the Turkish positions on the way and took Chocolate Hill. Um, later on in August, uh, you find that they attacked, attacked up Kerich Tepe, uh, which was one of the sharp uh, Arat-type hills on the, on the coast. And as basically, they took the top of the hill, but they couldn't hold it, uh, basically because they were bombed out and they didn't have any uh, 
bombs to do anything different. They moved then at the end of October into Salonika uh, when the, uh, the French and the British governments decided to open up another theatre there. And in November they went up into Serbia uh, where uh, they suffered quite, quite harshly from the weather conditions. You have to remember they left Suvla uh, uh, Bay uh, in summer outfits to find themselves in a Balkan winter. This is 1916-1917? This is 1915. Ah. Uh, November 1915, they landed in Salonika. And uh, in, in December 1915, they took part in the Battle of Costarino uh, when they were attacked by Bulgarian troops who had uh, come into the theatre. Um, they had originally uh, been put in there to help the French defend the area. The French fell back and eventually you know, the, uh, the 10th Irish Division had to fight uh, a fighting retreat out of the area because they were just one being outnumbered and two the flanks were no longer being protected. So how long did they spend in Salonika? They spent in Salonika until about October, November 1917. Uh, then uh, they moved to Egypt and from Egypt into Palestine. Um, they helped with uh, the 60th Division uh, take parts of uh, Gaza, the, the line from Gaza through Beersheba and rolled up the Turks in that area. Uh, they were involved in the capture of uh, Jerusalem in December 1917, but didn't actually take part in the battle itself, but took part later on in the defence of, of, the, of the city. And how Irish did the 10th Irish Division uh, remain through the war? This was the problem. Apart from what I can find, the Connor Rangers and the Royal Irish Rifles, quite quickly after, even during the Gallipoli campaign, ranks teams have sort of been filled up by other, other regions. The, uh, what we get is a number of men from the Norfolk Regiment uh, joining uh, the Dublin Fusiliers. Um, a week or so after arrival in Salonika, uh, almost 400 rank and file of the, uh, the Norfolk Regiment joined the 6th Royal Dublin Fusiliers. Um, they weren't hardly regarded, um, particularly by a number of the, particularly their officers actually. Uh, the 6th Hunter Rangers, they were still receiving drafts from home, from the, their own barracks as late as September 16. And uh, at December uh, 16, uh, the Royal Irish Rifles were still receiving drafts from home. All of the other ones tended to get um, drafts from other battalions very largely after Salonika, the character of most of the battalions started to disappear from being purely Irish. And did that continue right the way through the war? It did. Uh, what really happened, uh, uh, once they got to Salonika, they found that uh, with certain battalions unable to get drafts from uh, Irish regiments, there had to be a number of amalgamations. So what was the disciplinary record of the unit? Because you, do, you produce really some interesting figures and statistics and observations on, on how discipline functioned within the unit. The word appalling could come to mind. Uh, certainly the 10th Division had a record that was much worse than any other of the two uh, Irish divisions. Uh, in fact, uh, at one, by the time uh, they left Ireland, uh, the six Royal Dublin Fusiliers had already had 150 men court-martialed, uh, which was very high. Um, during the, um, their time abroad, they did their, their um, disciplinary record improved to such an extent that it had closed about 10% of the 16th uh, Irish Division. 
but had never really closed that much with the, the Ulster division. Uh, they, they were still recording maybe twice as many uh, field court marshals. It should be said, however, um, that there's little evidence that uh, the division actually addressed many of its uh, uh, disciplinary offences in-house. An awful lot of them were just automatically sent as court-martials. We don't see in, in many of the files uh, a situation where it has been dealt by the commanding officer or by a company commander. It seems, it seems that they passed them all on to higher authority. So essentially they farmed out their disciplinary issues rather than managing them? That's correct. Having said that, discipline does not appear to be a major factor uh, in affecting the morale or the, or the efficiency of the, the unit. Uh, at no stage do we, do we really see that. Only once uh, is it even suggested, and that was in the case of Patrick Downey, uh, the only man in the division who was shot at dawn. And really, to be quite honest, um, it's really quite a spurious uh, argument in that case. So why was the disciplinary record so bad? Um, I think partially because partially because of, of the nature of some of the men. Although uh, sociologists at the time would have said that uh, people who worked in industry um, would have been more uh, attuned to discipline, um, the two worst battalions in the division at that time were from Belfast and from Dublin. And the men, the men from Dublin, actually, uh, a lot of them had been men in the lockouts uh, of the previous year uh, when there had been a lot of industrial unrest in Dublin. Uh, the men from Belfast, a lot of them were men who had worked in the factories and don't appear to be that amenable to, dif- to discipline. Uh, and I think that's, that's one of the major factors. Um, it's also noticeable that perhaps... Uh, the units who, whose discipline record may be a bit better were those who had a higher proportion of uh, Englishmen uh, brought in. It's noticeable actually that uh, the 7th Royal Dublin Fusiliers, uh, who basically the PALS unit, their disciplinary action uh, actually got worse, uh, mainly because a lot of the, the TOFs that were in D Company then became, no, actually became officers after, after Suvla. And that took out, if you like, a leavening of uh, good behaviour uh, and a good example. Do you think there's any uh, evidence in the allegation that um, Tim Bowman made that Irish soldiers might be disciplined uh, because of prevailing ideas of Irish race and, and what, what a lot of Englishmen thought um, the Irish were in their so-called character? No, there's no evidence of that whatsoever. Uh, what I found is that um, they were reasonably well treated uh, in comparison. Yes, they had a lot of offences, but whereas in other divisions, uh, a lot of men you know, may well have been shot at dawn or gone for a much longer ser- penal servitude, in the Irish, in the 10th Irish Division, uh, only one man was shot. There may have been a lot of men who were sentenced to death, but they were not, the self sentence was not carried out. So really, they were not treated any really different. So see, what was morale like in the division during the war? Uh, apart from the, the fact that uh, a lot of men suffered from various illnesses, you know, enteric and uh, malaria and the like, and frostbite, morale seems to have held up quite well. Um, we don't actually have any... Uh, 
instances while on active service of mutiny, say like the French army. Uh, they tried to keep up um, the, uh, the morale of the men through various, various means, uh, you know, concert parties, which the Irish division didn't actually have one of its own. Um, it through talks, uh, through um, sporting events. Uh, the meal, of course, was very uh, important to the men, but unfortunately it would take about uh, up to six weeks uh, for replies to letters having going to, to Britain uh, and come back again. Um, they started uh, a repatriation uh, at times where people were able to go and leave to Britain, uh, but really at the rate that they were allowed to go from the division, uh, very few men were able to go on this. So a lot of it was local leave, um, which unfortunately tended to end up in some uh, drunken activities. Um, it was, it was estimated that in November uh, 1917, the, in the Royal Irish Fusiliers, uh, in the Royal Inniskill Fusiliers, there were still something like 600 men who had not had leave back to Britain since the beginning of the war. So that gives you some idea of, how, of the leave situation. But having said that, morale did not break. The Easter Rising obviously happened in April 1916. Did that uh, impact at all on the unit? There doesn't appear to be any real... Um, influence on the unit. Um, we get we get a few people commenting on it, uh, generally thinking it's a bad idea. But if you have to remember that by 1916, a large proportion of the men in the 10th Division were actually uh, from other parts of the United Kingdom, and therefore it perhaps would have had less of an impact on the 10th Irish than it would have had on the 16th, say, um, many of whom were recruited in uh, nationalist areas in, uh, in the southern counties of Ireland. And how would you rate the operational performance of the division? I know that's an incredibly difficult thing to do in a, in a podcast um, in, in two or three sentences. I think the best way of describing it is uh, steady and unspectacular. Um, I think at uh, Gallipoli they were badly let down by senior officers and by the staff. And I think that didn't help. Um, they um, were sent to areas where they couldn't really perform well. They were sent to areas where the casualty rates and the attrition on the, on the division was caused as much through illness as actual action. They only really took part in three major, relatively major actions uh, in Salonika, uh, and then maybe uh, another three or four in Palestine. So really they didn't get their chance to shine as much, and therefore to a large extent maybe they were out of sight and out of mind. Uh, they were also disbanded very early uh, because they were, indis- uh, they were Indianized in, in April 1918. So during its service uh, in the First World War, how many casualties did the 10th Division suffer? The official figures are that it suffered 9,363 dead, uh, killed and missing um, and wounded. However, this doesn't take into account uh, the effects of um, illness on the, on the, on the units. Um, what we know is that in late November um, in Salonika, uh, something like almost a thousand men were invalided with frostbite in a very short period. Then in the summer of 1916, um, when the units were down on the Struma Valley, which is a malarial area, um, something like uh, 6,500 6, men of the division were hospitalised. Now, the effects of uh, malaria are uh, ongoing. And so when they were transferred to, uh, to Egypt, they 
had a further three three thousand five hundred men uh, hospitalised, and the the medical staff reckoned that uh, they should the division should have been rested up for three three months uh, to bring it back to fitness again. However, Allenby had other ideas and basically got them up on their feet and marched them off into Palestine. How has this unit been regarded by history? I think it's largely been ignored by history. I think it's indicative of how it was going to be looked at from the very beginning. When it left Gallipoli, it hardly got any mention whatsoever in Hamilton's dispatches. In fact, Felix uh, Hill, uh, a brigadier and brigadier general in the division, had to more or less badger Hamilton to get any mention of it made at all. Um, even when they were leaving Salonika uh, in October 1917, it's not one member of the GHQ staff actually came down to wish them bon voyage and good luck, um, even though they'd, by that stage they'd been the division that had been longest in the theatre. In Irish context, um, really, I suppose, uh, as one of the newspapers reported at the time, in July 19, 1919, there was a peace day in Britain. Now, it was the approach in, Britain, in Ireland was maybe a bit ambivalent, but up in Belfast, uh, the 16th Irish Division had a sports day. The 36th Ulster Division had um, a, a march past. But according to one of the newspapers, the poor t- this contrasts with the poor Irish Division. Sad and heroic, having their little function in Gresham's Hotel. Nobody noticed them. While all of this fanfare from Belfast fills the air. So it had really been eclipsed by this stage, what, what they'd done glibly and so on again. It had been eclipsed by what had happened in 1916 and therefore largely forgotten. Was there a history of the division after the war? No, there wasn't. Uh, unlike the 36th Div- uh, Division, which produced a, a very uh, detailed um, uh, divisional history quite quickly after the war in, in the 20s, um, the 16th, they didn't really get their divisional history until the 1990s. And then now, I think I was the first one to look at the, uh, the 10th Division in any real detail. So why has the 10th Division been neglected? I think it's because it has no, if you like, uh, no political background. It was, uh, as, my, as the name suggests, neither unionist nor nationalist. Uh, it, didn't have Car- it wasn't part of Carson's army and it wasn't part of Redmond's army. So largely it's been forgotten in the narrative. And finally, Stephen, where can people get your book? I think the best source is probably from the publisher itself uh, in Irish academic press. They certainly uh, are giving much better value even with the, the state of the euro uh, and much less than uh, the cost that you would probably get it from Amazon. Uh, I notice it's probably charging an awful lot more than most other sources. Stephen, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Butterworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Russman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time.